Okay, Luke chapter number 2, if you will join me there, I'm going to read from verse 8 through verse number 20, the story of the shepherds, the message from the angels, and last week I read to you from the New American Standard, this week I'm going to read to you from the King James, and we'll see what we get next week, but this is a passage you're very familiar with, Luke 2 verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And there shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came in haste, and found Mary, and Joseph, and the babe, lying in the manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And when all they that heard it wondered, and all they that heard it wondered at these things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things, and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, as it was told unto them. Heavenly Father, Mary sets a good precedent for us here this morning. As she hears, she also ponders. And today, once again, we get to hear the message that you had the angels declare. May our hearts be ready to ponder as well, to think upon the very things that you have said, and to find their application even in our lives today, that we do not leave this place without understanding perfectly well our relationship with you, and the great love that you have bestowed upon us in the giving of your Son. Thank you for our time here this morning. We pray your blessing on it as we spend time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. That passage in Romans 8, I can't help but go a week without, I've got to add Romans 8, 32. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? And the fact of the matter is, as I started last week, we're talking about the gift of Christmas. That gift is Jesus Christ. That's what we talk about. That's our message. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And with that, he gave us so many other things. And that's what we're looking at in this passage in Luke chapter 2, verse number 10 and 11 particularly. Verse 10 is the message declared... The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, 
which will be for all the people. Good news of great joy for everyone. And the meaning of it, the definition, the message to find, is Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Lord, has been born. Verse number 11, For today in the city of David a Savior has been born for you, who is Christ the Lord. Now last week I spent a little time just on that first first phrase in verse number 11, Do not be afraid. I suggested to you a simple thing, that that too is a gift. A gift to perceive the need. Aren't you glad the Lord gave you that understanding that you needed Him? And I'm so glad He did. That little message started with the phrase, Do not be afraid. We talked about that last week. And today I want to move to the next phrase and look at that simple gift as well. I bring you good news. I bring you good news. By the way, that is a gift. Good news is a gift. And we're going to talk about that today as we work our way through this passage. He says in the King James Version, I bring you good tidings. Good news is another translation. We see all kinds of things listed that way. Just break it down for a minute. It's a real simple idea. The, the word euangelion, great big old Greek word. It's fun to have kids spell that in class because it takes almost every vowel that they have in the alphabet to put that word together. But euangelion is the word good news. U is the word for good or well. And angelion. Matter of fact, you might even recognize it if you saw it written out because it's the same word for angel. Angelion is a messenger as, as well. It's a message. And the verb angelizo, which is kind of fun, they all sound the same, don't they? That makes it easy on vocabulary tests, by the way. They say, oh, I got that one. That's just declare a message. Now, what's cool in this little passage is we have a messenger giving a message. The angel, an angelos, is giving the euangelion. I think that's pretty neat. I think it was fun to study through the word uh, for messenger. It's not only a messenger... And an angel especially, but by implication, it's a pastor. I stopped and thought, hey, that sounds cool for a change. Anyway, this passage, it talks about to announce good news. Now, here's the point. It makes it, it's real simple for you today. Not all messages are good news. Not all messages are good news. I'm going to take you to several places in Scripture this morning just to show you some things that will build to what we're going to talk about today. The angels brought good news, and I I tell you, that's a gift. Because way back in 1 Samuel chapter number 4, that's a long ways back in time. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, messengers came with news, and it wasn't good. What had taken place in these days in 1 Samuel chapter number 4 was that Israel was in a, it seems like a perpetual battle with the Philistines, having a great deal of trouble with the Philistines. And as a result of that, the army went out to war against the Philistines, and they were afraid that God wasn't with them. But the truth is, He wasn't with them, because they were disobedient. 
And their high priest, or their priest rather, I don't know that he was actually the high priest, but their priest was named Eli. And Eli's job as a, a, a leader among the people was to lead them into the things of the Lord, and he really didn't do that. As a result of that, the people came to Eli one day and said, you know, we're going into battle and we don't want to go alone. Do you, do you think it would be a great idea if we take the Ark of the Covenant with us? And I don't think Eli wanted the, that option, but uh, what could he say? His sons picked it up, and off they marched with it into the camp of the Israelites. On one side, the Israelites sounded off this enormous roar. Why? Because... To them, God had just entered the camp. The Philistines got a little worried all of a sudden because this golden box just entered the camp and that was Israel's God. They misunderstood. But they thought that that box was their God. And they were worried. They said, oh no, their God just came. So they thought that was bad news at first, till one of their generals stood up and said, oh, oh, don't worry about that. We can still lick them. Let's go and get them. And the Philistines attacked. Israel lost. Not only did they lose the battle, they lost the box. The Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines. And carried off, they had captured Israel's God. And off they went with the box. And they thought, wow, this is terrific. We just won. Well, here's what happened on the side of Israel. It says in verse number 12 of 1 Samuel 4, Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with this, with this clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it to the city, and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he says, What does the noise of this commotion mean? And the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he says to him, How did it go, my son? And the other who had brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. Terrible, terrible news. And it says, once this was mentioned, Eli fell out of his seat, broke his neck and died. That's bad news, isn't it? Terrible, terrible story. In Second Samuel chapter number one, Second Samuel chapter one, we have another instance of news. Here, the Israelites were fighting. They were in battle again. They were fighting the Philistines. And as they were in battle, King Saul and his son and his army were in the midst of that battle, and it was going very poorly. And King Saul was injured. Matter of fact, he knew he was not going to live. 
from the wound he had received on the battlefield. And so King Saul turns around to the nearest person to him in the midst of battle. He didn't want it to be known that a Philistine had put him to death in battle. So he turns to the man standing beside him and said, Who are you? And he says, Well, I'm an Amalekite. He says, Would you please come in and put me to death? The man did so. So, this Amalekite figured that David, who was not getting along with Saul at all, Saul had been chasing him for some 10 or 15 years of his life, thought David would receive this as good news. His enemy was dead. King Saul was dead. And so it starts the second book of Samuel. It came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, by the way, that David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. Let me tell you something. If anyone shows up at your house with their clothes torn and dust on their head, don't expect good news. All right? That's what we see common in Scripture. They come, they're covered with dust and their clothes are torn. And it came about, he came to David and he fell on the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, where do you come from? And he says, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he says, the people have fled from the battle, and many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man told him, by chance I happened to be on Mount Geboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold... The chariot and the horsemen pursued him closely, and when he looked behind him, he saw me. He called to me and said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I said, Well, I'm an Amalekite. Then he said to him, Please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him, and I killed him, because I knew that he would not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm and I brought them here to you, my Lord. And you know what he wanted? A reward. David took hold of his clothes and tore them so that all the men who were with him and that wept and they mourned for a whole day, it says in verse number 12. Then verse 13, David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he says, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. And David said to him, How is that you are not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David called for one of his young men and said, Go strike him down. And he struck him down and he died. Isn't that a terrible story? Oh, really? That's a terrible, terrible story. Terrible story. Not all messengers carry good news. Not all messengers who bring good news, or what they think is good news, turns out good for them either. You see stories like this in Scripture quite often to tell the truth. If you're not sure if news is not all good, put it on at 10 o'clock tonight. You'll see, we have that problem still today. I'm just setting a table for you today. 
a context that I hope is very helpful for you to understand what's going on in Luke chapter number 1, Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 3. These kind of uh, stories we set up as a Christmas story. We talk about the things that were done in those chapters. And yet, they were very difficult days in the land of Israel. They were under the power of Rome at that time. They had a brutal king named Herod, who, by the way, was not afraid to put children to death. If you knew the rest of Herod's story, you would not like that man at all. He was a brutal man. The people that lived in the land of Israel longed for release from Roman power. They had been in conflict with them for well over a hundred years. Very difficult days had been before them. And, and in a way, that the time that came around to the birth of Christ, they had kind of settled in with this uncomfortable domination over them. And yet, how do you maintain an everyday life? How do you carry on with what you're going to do? How do you get by? They had kind of settled in to the bondage to some degree. They were under the power of Roman leaders, and they would use that whenever they can to their advantage. And their own leadership was corrupt, by the way. The people who were supposed to serve them as high priests were evil men. You probably recognize the stories of Annas and Caiaphas and men like that. You remember them? They were the ones that had Jesus put on trial and put to death. That was a very difficult time to live. I don't think you would have liked it. But if you backed up even 400 years before that, you will read the story of Malachi, the prophet setting the table for all these things. Because in the day of Malachi, the Lord had over and over and over extended his love to these people. And yet, the hypocrisy of the leadership, the sinfulness of the priestly group that was to lead them, was so apparent, so incredible, that when they came to understanding God's law, they refused it. They, they treated the scripture irreverently. Matter of fact, they even came to the place to say that the table of the Lord is contemptible. That was their phrase in that day. What's that mean? They would smash it like you would the ugliest bug you've ever seen. That was their contempt for the things of God. That was the leadership in Malachi's day. And he addressed that group. And from there, it went silent. But listen to the last three verses of Malachi's message, just before God chose not to speak to them. He says in Malachi 4, verse 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Remember that law. He says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of their fathers to their children 
and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Say, well, is that good news or bad news? I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. Let me, let me put it in perspective. That's not good news. If you read the story of Elijah the prophet, when he came to town, something terrible was about to happen. Because he brought with him the message of God against an apostate group of people. And he'd deal with their sins, and he addressed them so bluntly. And notice how Malachi said this. He's going to send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Does that sound like good news to you? And then you say, oh, but he's going to join hearts together of children and, and fathers and fathers to children. And the Lord says, well, I could come and smite you. Even in the midst of wrath, God was merciful, wasn't he? He was merciful. And then it went quiet. It went quiet. For all those years, there was no message from God. The, the, the prophets had stopped. The prophets had stopped. That can be a very alarming thing, by the way. People want news, don't they? There was no news coming from heaven. I want to back you up to another passage. 300 years before Malachi. Just so you know, this wasn't something, you know, fresh on the part of Israel in their relationship with God. This was a continuous problem. And Isaiah had to address it too. And Isaiah did way back in chapter number 8 of his prophecy. If you go back there, you'll see some incredible things. Isaiah chapter number 8. I, I am drawn to this chapter, 8 and 9, every single year at this time. I cannot help it. When I start looking at this passage and I see what the Lord has said here in Isaiah's day, I know Isaiah's job was to give them news. He was a prophet. He was to tell them what God wanted them to know. A prophet's primary job was not to tell the future, by the way. It was to point at them and say, this is what God had told you, why aren't you doing it? A prophet confronted, a prophet corrected, a prophet kept reminding them of the law over and over and over again. That was his job, was to bring them back into remembrance of the things of God. And Isaiah's job was to give them news about God, but they didn't want it. Not in Isaiah's day. Matter of fact, they had a king in chapter 7, background information that you'd be familiar with. His name was Ahaz. And he was a wicked man. And as a result of that, God says, Alright, I, I have a solution for wicked men, and this is what I typically do. I send the enemy upon them. And so he sent two. One was the Syrians, and the other was the northern tribe of Israel, of all things. Here's a Judean king being attacked by his own brothers to the north. And the Syrians as well. And they were coming down upon Ahaz. And Ahaz was really nervous about it. And Isaiah came to him. And you know what? I think you would have loved to have a friend by the name of Isaiah. Isaiah came to him and said, Ahaz, God wants to help you. Turn to him. Trust him. All will be well. 
Just ask for a sign. The Lord will give you any sign you want. Just to show you that he's for you. Whether it's as deep as the grave or as high as heaven, ask for a sign. Any sign. And Ahaz, in his pride, says, I will not ask for a sign. He didn't want a message from God. So the Lord says, then I will give you a sign. Let me give you a sign. And this is the sign that I give to you. You'll recognize it. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. There's more to the message. But he simply says, and by the way, by the time a child is born and rises up just enough to be able to eat, just enough to know that no is no and yes is yes, those two people who are bothering you right now won't be bothering you anymore. You would say, Ahaz should be comfortable with that, right? But Ahaz was not comfortable with that. You know what Ahaz decided to do? Rather than trust the Lord, he sent an email. Not an email. He sent a message up to the king of Assyria, of all people, and said, I'd like to make a deal with you. If you'll come down and take care of Syria and, and Israel for me, oh, I'll, I'll be your friend forever. Ahaz made a deal with a people that would soon become his enemy. And that's the set, set up for chapter 8. You ready for chapter 8? This is incredible. This is from a group that turned their back on the Lord. Then the Lord said to me, talking to Isaiah, Isaiah 8, verse 1, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it ordinary letters. Swift is the beauty, speedy is the prey. That's the message. <laughs> All right. For I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony. Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah. Jeberachiah, I think. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said, Name him Malar Shalahajbaz. Is that a beautiful name? Longest name in Scripture, by the way. Malar Shalahajbaz. You know what that means? Swift is the beauty, speedy is the prey. That's his name. For before the boy knows how to cry out, My father, or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Oh, this is good news for Ahaz. But it's not good news. Listen to it. In verse number 5, again the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gentle flowing waters of Shiloh, and rejoiced in resin in the son of Remaliah. Now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria, and all his glory. And it will rise up over its channels, and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on to, into Judah, and it will overflow and pass through, and it will reach even to the neck. The spread of its wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Here's the picture. He says, you have rejected my gentle word. And instead of a drink from the stream, you're trying to drink, take a drink from a fire hydrant. You asked for Assyria to come and help you and take care of your enemies to the north. And by the time Assyria is done, you're going to have them all the way up to your neck. Because they're not going to stop there. They're coming on you too. That's what his word was. That's not good news. Not good news at all. 
And so this is what Isaiah adds to in verse 9. Be broken, O peoples, be shattered, give ear, O remote places of the earth, gird yourself, yet be shattered, gird yourself, yet be shattered, devise a plan, but it will be thwarted, state a purpose, but it will not stand. You're saying, well, God is with us. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you're not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all these that the people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or to be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread, and he shall become a sanctuary. But, to both the houses of Israel. To, to them he will be a stone to strike, a rock to stumble over, a snare, a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall. They will be broken. They will even be snared and caught. So, take the testimony and bind it up. Take the law. Tie it up. Don't share it with them. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and wonders in Israel for the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And then God tells Isaiah, they're going to come to you now. Because I'm not talking to them. They cannot hear any news from me. They didn't want my message. So we're putting it away so they don't hear. And when they come to you, they're going to say, Consult the mediums, please. Go, go and be a spiritist who whispers and mutters. What I want you to say is, shouldn't you talk to God? Shouldn't you consult your God? Why do you consult the dead on behalf of the living? And they say, to the law then, to the testimony. And if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. This is where it gets very dark, folks. When they turn their back on the Word of God, they have nothing. And that's still true today. If we turn our back on the Word of God, we have nothing. That is our guide in life. They had no guide. They refused to hear God's Word. So God says this is where they're bound to go. They have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed. They will pass through it famished. And they will turn about that when they are hungry, they will be enraged. And they will curse their king and their God as they face upward. And they will look to the earth and behold, it's just distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish. And they will be driven away into darkness. Isn't that hard? Then verse chapter 9 starts. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Because here it is, the people who walked in darkness will see a great light. Now, folks, how many times have we lost power for more than two or three days? How do you feel when it kicks back on? Ah, oh, I know that feeling. 
You just read it in this verse. That that expression. They had been walking in darkness because they turned their back on the Lord. They see a great light. Those who had lived in dark lands lived there. That means they settled in. They were dwelling in it. That was everyday life to them was darkness. They lived in darkness, and the light was shine on them. You shall multiply the nations, you shall increase their gladness, you shall be glad and you, they shall be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. And you shall break the yoke of the burden and the staff from their shoulder, the rod of the oppressor as in the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning. Fuel for the fire. Why? What has changed? Verse number 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name shall be called. Wonderful. Counselor. The mighty God. The everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. He is the light that shines in the darkness. That was the Lord's answer to the people in darkness. That was the answer to rebellious people. That was the answer to hypocritical leaders. That was the answer to the oppression of enemies and the effects of sin. That was the answer to darkness and lostness and deadness. That was the answer to sin. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God sent. That's the good news, you see. Here's the picture that you find here in Luke chapter 2. That's where the shepherds were in their day and age. And I know literally they were in darkness when the, when the angels showed up. But spiritually they were too. In every way those people were under the bondage of their sin. Because they had rejected the Lord. And they heard nothing for over 400 years. And suddenly God spoke to them. And I give you this. Good news was a gift. Because that's not what they deserved. Good news was the gift that the Lord had given to them. That's just an amazing thing that the Lord would care enough. That even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins... He would love us enough to send His Son. That's good news, folks. That's incredibly good news. That's what they received that day. See, the gift of news would be good anyway. In one regard, at least there's communication. At least you know what's on the way. Maybe if it's bad news, you can brace yourself for it. But the gift of news is not always good. The gift of news, many times, could be bad. At least when it comes to spiritual things, the gift of news is what we would deserve. It's what we would have deserved. However, the gift of good news is what he gave to them. I'm going to read to you just a paragraph out of John Calvin's commentary. I mean, you're going back to 1500s. But listen to these words. I think it's just quite fascinating. He says, in concerning verse 10, 
The design of this exhortation is to alleviate their fear. For though it is profitable for the mind of men to be struck with awe, that they may learn to give unto the Lord the glory due his name, yet they have need, at the same time, of consolation, that they may not be altogether overwhelmed. For the majesty of God could not but swallow up the whole world if there were not some mildness to mitigate the terror which it brings. And so the reprobate falls down lifeless at the sight of God, because he appears to them as no other character than that of a judge. But to revive the minds of the shepherd, the angel declares that he was sent to them for a different purpose, to announce to them the mercy of God. When men hear the single word, that God is reconciled to them, it not only raises up those who have fallen down, but restores those who were ruined and recalls them from death to life. I said, wow, that's quite a way of expressing it, isn't it? You know what that is? You know what that is. That's the moment you understood Jesus Christ died for you as your Savior. That's what you came to understand when He changed your life forever. Where your sin was paid for at that cross. Where you received mercy and grace. And your eyes were opened. And your heart went toward Him. And you received Jesus Christ as your Savior. Remember that time? What an amazing thing to hear good news. What an amazing thing to hear good news. That's what the shepherds did that day. When the angels came to them and said, I bring you good news. Good news. A Savior is born. One person wrote this way, The way to pardon and peace with God was to be thrown wide open to the world. That's what he did. I've heard many years ago, you had an uh, individual come and speak here by the name of Larry Moyer. He talked about uh, a simple thing. Bad news and good news. I know that because I've heard him too. And I've got a little pamphlet here in my Bible. I carry it with me. Real simple thing it says. Has anyone ever taken a Bible and shown you how you can know for sure that you're going to heaven? The Bible contains both bad news and good news. The bad news is something about you and the good news is something about God. Look first at the bad news. Bad news number one, you are a sinner. It says in Romans chapter 3 verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin means that we have missed the mark. When we lie, hate, lust, or gossip, we have missed the standard God has set for us. Suppose you and I each were to throw a rock and try to hit the North Pole. Boy, Santa Claus wouldn't like that. No, I'm sorry, that's not in here. You might throw further than I, but neither of us would hit it. When the Bible says all have sinned and fall short, it means that we have all come short of God's standard of perfection. In thoughts, words, and deeds, we have not been perfect. But the bad news gets worse. Bad news number two, the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Suppose that you work for me and I paid you $50. 
that $50 was your wages. That's what you earned. The Bible says that by sinning, we have earned death. That means we deserve to die and be separated from God forever. But, since there is no way for you to come to God, the Bible says that God decided to come to you. Good news number one. Christ died for you. Romans 5.8 says that by God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Suppose you were in the hospital dying of cancer, and I came to you and said, let's take that cancer from your body and put it in my body. If that were possible, what would happen to me? And what would happen to you? I would die in your place. I would die instead of you. The Bible says Christ took the penalty that we deserve for sin, placed it upon himself, and he died in our place. Three days later, Christ came back to life to prove that sin and death has been conquered and that, he, that his claims to be God were true. Just as the bad news got worse, the good news gets better. Good news number two, you can be saved through faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace, undeserved favor, you have been saved and delivered from sin's penalty. Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Faith means trust. You must trust Christ for, you must depend on him alone to forgive you and give you eternal life. And just as you trust a chair to hold you through no effort of your own, so you must trust Jesus to get you to heaven through no effort of your own. But you say, I'm religious. I go to church. I don't steal. I'm a good person. I help the poor. These are all good, but good living, going to church, helping the poor, and any other good thing you might do cannot get you to heaven. You must trust Jesus Christ alone. And God will give you eternal life as a gift. Then he closes. Does that make sense to you? How many times has God said that to this world? How many times has the message been declared over and over and over and over again? God has given us good news. Good news and good news. Even when we don't deserve it. I call that a gift, don't you? And if you've received that gift today, you have to be the most thankful person on the planet. Heavenly Father, when we study your word and we see the sinfulness of men, and then we look in the mirror and see ourselves, we, we are alarmed. We are absolutely alarmed at what we see. But when we study your word and see you, we are overwhelmed with such a holy, righteous, just God loving us, sending His Son for us, that we might have forgiveness, that You would care to draw us to Yourself and extend one more time Your arm of love toward us and say, here is my gift, here is my Son. He will take Your place for the penalty that you might live with us forever. What an incredible thing you have done for us, Lord. What an incredible thing. We praise you for it, really. 
from our hearts, we thank you. Lord, I'm hoping this morning, if somebody among us does not know Christ as Savior, that the Holy Spirit has worked in their heart even today. Revealed to them the very same thing that we all here who have come to know you have come to understand too. We needed a Savior, and you sent us one. And we're so thankful for Jesus Christ. May they understand their need for a Savior today, too. Draw them to yourself, like you drew us. We rejoice in it today, Lord. Thank you so much for the gift of good news. We praise you for that. We rejoice in that, and we worship you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.